Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I'm excited about what we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 will be there in a moment. And as I said, good morning. Um, if you're a guest joining us uh, this morning, we are uh, delighted to have you. Uh, today is World Mission Sunday among Baptist Missionary Association churches, the churches that we uh, fellowship with. We're all going to be taking up a special offering, and this is a day each year. Um, of course, it feels like, feels like at our church we focus every, every Sunday, uh, every day that we meet together on missions. And that's the truth. That's what churches should do. But today we have a special emphasis on the topic of, of missions, and I want to go in a different direction than maybe what you would commonly think on that, or some might think. I want to, to talk, as we're talking about, we're focusing on reaching the world for Christ, reaching the world for God, I, I instead want to talk about God, and I want to talk about God's greatness. And so, uh, this morning's sermon is Mission, the Greatness of God. Now, that's a tall order to speak on the greatness of God. Um, I, at times, almost feel ashamed to speak on something like that. Sermons on the holiness of God or on the greatness of God are, are so difficult to do because you look at, at, your, at yourself um, well, some of you that maybe you're in a different generation, have you, ever had, have you ever had one of your children come home and, and they've met somebody and you say, well, tell us about him, tell us about him, what's he like? And, and she says, well, he's, he's nice. And he's just nice. I, I love him. He's so great. Or tell us about him. And there's just not a lot there. I hope you haven't experienced that, but you see that on TV a lot. You see that, hey, there's just not a lot there as far as, as far as not, we just seem way below where we should be on, on the knowledge and being able to speak about uh, this personality of God. And it just, it's just such a tall order. Um, but I want to do so because it's important for us to realize that everything has to start with God. We don't just pick up in our Christian lives and in the, the story of the Bible and where we are in history, we don't just pick up where man's activity is going on. And we leave God out of the picture. And I know that's, that's an easy thing for us to say, well, of course. And yet, we, in practice, we'd actually do that. Uh, why does a church that believes in the Great Commission? That's Jesus' command for us to go and make disciples of all nations, preaching the good news of salvation to them through Jesus, that He died on the cross to forgive us of our sin to pardon us so that we could have a relationship with God. We baptize them and then we teach them how to, be, how to know God, how to be like Christ, how to follow Christ. That's, that's the Great Commission, making and maturing disciples. And that's one of our biblical core values, as Adam uh, read this morning. And that should be a core value for any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the urgency of global gospel missions but in place before that, in the number one slot, is our belief in the supremacy of God. That's our number one 
core value. That's the number one core value of the Bible. That's the number one core value of the church, the supremacy of God, that God is great, that He is supreme, and He's greater than anything, greater than all things. And it's this value, this knowledge of God, which informs and directs then and empowers the mission that God has us on. Who He is defines our very existence, not only our mission. In other words, this morning, I want to help us understand God's mission by first turning our eyes to the God of the mission and of His greatness. Because as the phrase goes, uh, in South Arkansas anyway, you don't want to put the cart before the horse. And the most important thing that we need to know about is God Himself. And so I want to give my feeble attempt at that this morning. Some of the things that we're going to mention are just going to be simple reminders for many of you but let them be deep reminders. And for some of you, maybe it will bring about something that you've never heard. Maybe for some of you, it'll be an area that you need to be convicted in. Maybe you're doubting this part of who God is. And so, listen as we dive into His Word. I want to give you three main words this morning. Descriptions of God. First, God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. That word... Comprehend means to understand, of course. It means to, um, to know, to have a knowledge of it. And when I say that God is incomprehensible, what, what I mean here, what we mean is that you nor I will ever come to a complete mental or experiential understanding of who God is. You will never know God 100%. Otherwise, you would be God. And He would not be. Every one of us likes to play theologian at times. But have you ever sat and thought about how much you don't know about God? Not just assumed it and moved on, but really, really thought about it. Really immersed yourself in the amount of things that you don't know about God. It'll breed some humility in you. It'll grow that humility in you. It can turn into despair. But that's what the rest of this message is about. But it should create humility. Uh, Job's friend Zophar said to him, said to Job, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty, Job? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the sea and broader than the sea. Paul said in Romans, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and untraceable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Answer, no one. Two words that will help you understand the, how God is incomprehensible are these two words. The first word is transcendent. God is transcendent. You're going to get some good vocabulary today if you're not familiar with these words. Most of you... Uh, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that thinks these are big words. Transcendent. What does that mean? Well, we talk about ascending or descending up and down a mountain. Transcendent means that God is beyond us. Beyond us in nature. He does not require us or this world or this universe for His own existence. And He is over us completely as far as His greatness. He transcends this world. 
I think of an ant farm. Raise your hand if any of you ever owned an ant farm or your kids have ever owned an ant farm. Okay, a few of you. They're kind of cool. Um, basically, a plane of glass or two planes of glass uh, with a frame. You've got dirt there, and it's thin enough that you can see the ants building tunnels and moving, and you can feed them, and, and they're, they're kind of in their own little world, their own little system there. And you stand outside of that and you watch them. And I'm not sure if an ant ever really knows that you're there. Maybe they are if you mess with them or tap on the glass. But they sure don't know what you are. They're focused on what they've got going on. They're in their own little world. And you are a big transcendent person. Back away from them looking and observing. You are transcendent. You are beyond the ant's. Isaiah 55, where you are in your, your Bibles, if you want to read along there, Isaiah 55, we'll be in verse 8. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and verse 9. Isaiah the prophet speaks the words of God, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is transcendent. For us to fully understand God is like an ant, not trying to understand me, but trying to understand and comprehend and explain the sun. And even that doesn't get it at all. God is incomprehensible. He is transcendent. And yet the Bible has good news for us. We don't serve merely a transcendent God. Even though they're, they're, the pews are littered and each of us are tempted constantly to merely see a transcendent God the good news is we have a God who is imminent imminent that word means that God is with us Jesus's title was Emmanuel he would be called Emmanuel meaning God with us the God of the Bible the God of scriptures the God that we love and worship and adore he is not only transcendent and we adore Him and worship Him for those things, but He is imminent and we love and adore Him and worship Him for that reason as well. It's the only reason that we even know about Him is because He has become imminent to us. He has made Himself known. He didn't just create the world and go on vacation. He isn't just sitting in heaven, arms folded with a scowl, observing, merely observing. We can know God. We can know God. This is good news. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will, fully, I will know fully as I am fully known. Well, what does that mean? Does this mean that I can completely comprehend God? Is that what Paul's saying when he's saying that, that I will know fully? No, not at all. What it is saying is, is what I've just explained. It means that I can fully know Him 
within the capacity and the ability that I've been created to have as a man and not God. I can know Him as a man. My baby son has no idea what daddy does when he goes out and changes the oil in the car, right? He does not understand the complexity of the things that that I have to do or that his mommy has to do to care for him. He does not understand why daddy has to leave for work every day. He does not understand how daddy got so strong to be able to pick him up. He does not even understand a lot of words at this point, and he's just learning to speak words. There is so much that he does not understand. He's not even asking questions yet, but those of you who have kids, you know that that time is coming. Can I get an amen? The questions will come. And that's a glorious thing. He does not fully comprehend his daddy, but he knows me. He knows that I care for him. He knows that he can trust me. And and in a very profound way, he knows that I am his and he is mine. God, in the same way, has made himself imminent to us. The fact that we even have a great commission, brothers and sisters, is an amazing thing, is it not? Think about it, an incomprehensible, transcendent God of the universe has chosen to make Himself imminent with us and then allow us to participate in His mission to be imminent to the world, to be present. It's astounding. It's a further reflection of God's amazing character and His incomprehensible nature. We can't explain all of why He is like He is. He just is. And one of the amazing things about heaven is this is why heaven will never get boring. We will spend all of eternity exploring and learning in a progressive way, but never a complete fullness, the glories and the wonders of our God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God is incomprehensible. God is also incorruptible. He's incorruptible. We know what corruption is in this society. We talk about it when we talk about politics. Or we talk about the corruption of the body. Corruption is the eroding or the falling apart of a thing. It's a compromising of something that that was once pure or whole. God can never be compromised. He can never be any less than what He is. He cannot fail. He cannot fade. He cannot weaken. He will never downgrade in any way shape or form he was and he is and he is to come he is first of all eternal and a lot of these things that i'm giving you today they could fit in any one of these categories but when we talk about god being incorruptible we should think about how he is eternal he was he is and he is to come god has no beginning and he has no end and this is so important because anything with a beginning could increase or decrease. God is never upgraded or downgraded. He's never improved. He's always been perfect. He is eternal and He doesn't change. He will never deteriorate. He will never weaken. And that's what makes Him the greatest. 
He told Moses his name was simply I am that I am. That used to confuse me. It still does confuse me to a degree, but now I see such beauty and wonder in that. Only God could simply be the I am. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, Paul speaks and says that God alone possesses immortality. Malachi said in chapter 3 of God, God speaking through Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't change? You can change. God will never change. I heard a preacher, Brother David Miller, said this one time. First time I ever heard it, I thought it was so great. He said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Psalm 33, 11. And you may say, well, I can't understand that eternal thing. I can't understand that. That doesn't fit into my mind. Well, join the club. That's a hard thing to understand. I only have two bits of uh, advice that I want to share with you this morning about that, though. One, for your mind's sake. Because it is a hard thing to understand. You can't escape eternity you can't escape the concept of it it's real solomon in ecclesiastes said god has put eternity in our hearts we know about eternity we long for eternity we know that eternity exists before everything was there had to be something and that something can't be a thing it has to be a person because people make things not the other way around if you followed all that you're doing good For me, it makes more sense, far more sense to say that God made everything rather than to say nothing made everything. It's terribly unscientific. So the more and more you think about it, you realize that God, God must exist. God must exist for the things that are here to be here. And He must be eternal. Otherwise, whatever made Him would be God. And He would not be God. God is eternal. He was. He is. He is to come. He is the I am. But don't just focus on the head knowledge. You could spend a lot of time focusing on the head knowledge and figuring out whether God does exist. And there are plenty of people that are going to miss heaven because they realize that God does exist or a God does exist, but they don't know God and they've missed heaven by 18 inches. Because they've avoided God with their heart. They've pursued God with their mind, but they've avoided God with their heart. What do I mean by that? I mean that we, first of all, do not have a mind problem. We have a heart problem. We have a conscience problem. And we need to be careful that we don't use our unexplained questions as an excuse to hide our sin. I see this a lot. Well, God can't exist because I don't have this question answered. I don't have that question answered. Or He can't be this way because that doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense. And at the root of it all is a sinner who's trying to run from God. Who's trying to follow the deceptiveness of their heart to explain God away. You may not know all of the answers, but do you really need more proof? Or is it that you're trying to hide from God or to deny God. 
Is it that deep, deep down you realize that you've broken God's laws and that He's the eternal judge over your life and you don't want Him to be? And you want to be the God of your life and you want to be in control. Repent of that today. Let God be God. Not you. God is eternal. He's also holy. If being eternal, in a sense, shows us, uh, eternal in God's nature, shows us uh, the quantity, how lasting He is, then holiness might be said to show us the quality of that existence. All these things I'm mentioning to you, like I said, they can, they can overlap. God's holiness is incomprehensible. We can't fully understand it. But holiness is the Bible's ultimate label for God. It is the primary attribute. It is the attribute of attributes. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. It never says God is love, love, love. It says God is holy, holy, holy. And a lot of time could be spent unpacking the holiness of God and should be in your own life and in my life. But God's holiness means that He's incorruptible. Because He is holy, He cannot be corrupted. What does holiness mean? Holiness, the holiness of God, means that He is completely and utterly set apart in His purity, perfection, and value. And I add that last part of value because you, you can... You can have, uh, a, uh, you can have a, uh, a room full of dirt, or you can have a room full of diamonds. Both can be pure, but one is valuable, far more valuable than the other. When we talk about God's holiness, we have to understand that He is valuable and He is precious in His perfection. It is not a dull, uh, um, boring perfection. It is a a fiery life of holiness. Psalm 30. Who will, not, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. Sing to Yahweh, You His faithful ones, and praise His holy name. Psalm 30. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. What good is it, friends, for us to do missions, for us to go somewhere and to put a smile on somebody's face and that be it? That smile is going to go away. What good is it for us to go and to pass out sandwiches when tomorrow is coming? What good is it for us to go and to build houses or buildings or whatever when the generations from now, those things will erode and decay and no longer be there. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, I highly recommend, if you struggle with these things, to go and to read his wisdom. He constantly, he constantly is bringing us back to the question, to get us to, to the, the main issue in the human life that we struggle with, or one of the main issues. Where is the game? What lasts? He's constantly saying, what profits a man to do this? What profits a man to do that? 
There may be some joys that we have, and we should rejoice in those things. God gives us those joys. Joys of family, joys of work, joys in fulfilling God's mission. There's, there's joy there, but where is the lastingness? He's constantly saying, this thing is vain, and that thing is vain, and this thing is vain, and that thing is vain, meaning that they're fleeting. They're going to go away. They're not going to last if God is not in the picture. And sometimes even if He is, some things are just by nature temporal. When we do missions, we are not taking something corruptible to the world. We are taking the incorruptible God. Amen? We are taking an eternal, a holy God to people whose lives are by nature eroding, corrupting, and dying. Only God is the permanent answer for us. Only God is the permanent answer for the world. When we take God, then we are doing missions correctly. When we take food merely, or, or happiness merely, or material things, and we leave God out of the picture, we are doing nothing. I think Solomon would look at a lot of the church's mission work today and say, that's vain. Where's God in that? Where's Jesus in that? Are we telling people about the cross? Are we telling people how to know the incorruptible God? But there's more good news. The good news is that God saves us from our corruption. He not only is the only one that's incorrupt, He gives us some of that. He makes us incorrupt. I love 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to read something that is, that is so hopeful, so powerful about, about the coming ends of the age, about what is going to happen, read 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn there, uh, if you will. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. Beginning in verse 50, Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So God is incomprehensible, He is incorruptible, and finally He's incomparable. There is no one like God. He is without equal. No one stands in comparison to Him. Psalm 89, the heavens will praise Your wonders, O Lord, Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to You? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. Did you catch what it said there? 
a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. There can be holy ones all around God, and He is still incomparable. He stands alone. He is without equal. He is awesome above all those who are around Him. That is why the seraphim, the burning ones, fly around Him with face covered and feet covered, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. He's incomparable. Isaiah chapter 40, let me read you a few of the things. A fantastic chapter on this. Isaiah chapter 40 is. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand or marked off the heavens with the span of His hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in the scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or who gave Him His counsel? Who did He consult with? Who gave Him understanding and taught Him the paths of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. Now, I love that. Sometimes the Bible is hard to understand, but when it gets to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 15, that is a South Arkansas phrase, it's a drop in the bucket. We're watching the Olympics over the last couple of weeks, and there is so much, and I, and, I, and I enjoy watching sport. I'm not saying that. Don't take what I'm saying to an extreme. But here you have the nations, or at least the nations that participate in winter games. You have such a, a mass gathering of these nations, and there's, there's such perceived honor and grandeur and, and, and greatness that surrounds these games and the reputations of these mighty, mighty nations. And Isaiah says, these nations are a drop in the bucket to the one true and living God. They are a drop in the bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales compared to Him. Verse 18, who will you compare God with? What likeness will you compare Him to? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth. The universe to God is like thin cloth that He stretched out. And He spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth irrational. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when He blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. Who will you compare me to? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. God is incomparable. And He's incomparable. I want to give you two reasons that He's incomparable this morning. The first is His sovereignty. He is the sovereign. That means He's the King. He's in control. He is the ruler. God is incomparable because He alone is sovereign. He is the King over all creation. He is the ruler. I had a great conversation with one of my family members a few days ago when they were testing me. They believe the same thing I do, but they were testing me. They wanted to know how I would answer if someone came up to me and they asked about the, the evil thing that happened down in Florida, um, the man that did, did such evil, how would you answer someone that, that, that asks, is God in control of that? Is God in control of that? I answered in a word, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a frightening thing. A far, it is a frightening thing if you were to say he wasn't. 
who then would be in control. God is sovereign. We, we come up with all kinds of crazy things to say as, as sinful humans. We say, because evil is in the world, he must not be on his throne, and because of my sin, I don't want him on the throne. But God's in control. God is there. And He is ruling over this earth. It's almost, although I understand it and I, I, I say the same thing, it's almost, it's almost incorrect for us to ask people to make Jesus the Lord of their life. Because He is the Lord of their life. Whether they want to admit it or submit to it or not. And one day, it will be reconciled. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. But I understand the idea of accepting Him and submitting to that Lordship. I certainly understand that. Let me give you some Scripture on that. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven and He does whatever He pleases. Psalm 135. Yahweh does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the depths. Isaiah 46. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done. Saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Let me read you a quote from the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon. I loved what he said here. Please follow along. He, it's always hard to, to read Spurgeon. He's, he's so smart. So follow along. This is amazing. In speaking of God's sovereignty, he says, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldings, worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a Football, and this wasn't written at the time of American football, so it was a different football. As the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah, men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow Him to be in His almondry, His treasury, to dispense alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures gnash their teeth, and we proclaim an enthroned God, and His right to do as He will with His own, to dispose of His creatures as He thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed and execrated. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us. For God on His throne is not the God they love, but it is the God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne whom we trust. And it certainly is. We love Him and we trust Him. 
And He is our hope because He is in control. Because of His sovereignty, we can believe in promises such as all things work together for the good of them that know God and are called according to His purpose. And also, we have authority to be on mission. If the sovereign says we have authority, then we have authority. We have authority to reach out to the world because the king has told us to do it. We also see his love. His love makes him incomparable. He has an incomparable love. John wrote in 1 John 4, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son, His one and only Son, into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and His love is perfected. In us, And so we see there a love that happened on the cross where Jesus came and bled and died to set us free from our sin and to, make us, uh, and to connect us to God. But we also see a remaining love. It's said there that God's love remains in us and His love is perfected in us. He is loving us and His love is incomparable. Listen to the prayer of Jesus, what He prays for us. This is for us He prays. I have given them the glory, speaking to the Father, I have given them the glory that You have given to me. May they be one just as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you've loved me. Father, I desire that those you have given me to be with me where I am. He wants us to be with him. Then they may see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. And John 3 verse 1, great verse, look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. John 3.16, For God so loved the world in this way, He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. This great God we're talking about this morning, if you're under the sound of my voice today, and you do not know Jesus Christ, and you have no love for God, and you have not been forgiven by God, know that God loves you and is willing to forgive you and is willing to change you and is willing to pour His love into you. All you need to do is to turn from your sin and to trust in Him. And He will save. He will love you with an everlasting love. He is loving you right now. That's why you are here. Will you turn to Him? Or is it all going to stay up in your head? Is it all something you're going to build a defense up against? You're going to wait till the next Sunday. Maybe you'll get a warm, fuzzy feeling during a song. It's not what it's about. God has extended to you the free offer of the good news, the free offer of His Son's salvation. All you need to do is take it, accept it, submit to it, and be saved. The work is done. Receive the work that He did for you and be saved and know Him and the joy of His salvation. A few closing questions. First, why did God love me? This great God, why did God love me? Let's start there. 
What was there in me to attract God's love? Some people think deep down that they're pretty great. Uh, God loves me because uh, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. You go out and you talk to people. Why is God going to let you into heaven? Well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I've lived a pretty good life. In other words, they're saying, God's going to love me because I'm pretty great. Other people think that it's uh, because of pity, uh, because their situation is, is bad. Um, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Uh, some people just think that God is obligated to love anyone that's in a, a bad state. And so you've got these two options here. You've got God loves people because he, he, they, just, uh, they are owed his love because of how much suffering and bad things they're going through. And then over here, God loves people that are pretty great. Deuteronomy 7, when God is speaking to the children of Israel, he says, The Lord was devoted to you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples. He's talking to the nation of Israel. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath, he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why does God love me? And what reasons is God sending me to others? God loves you, first of all, because he made a promise to love you. And he will love you if you will come to him. God made a promise to Abraham that he would love Israel, and that's what he did. Abraham didn't deserve his love. And the reason that we go out on mission to others uh, to share the gospel with them is not because they deserve or have a right to hear the gospel. No one has a right to hear the gospel. All we deserve, because we are sinners and have broken God's law, all we deserve is hell. All we deserve is judgment. And any thought other than that is prideful and arrogant and sinful, and yet each of us at times will feel that way. Well, this person deserves to hear the gospel. These poor people over here, they deserve to hear the gospel. They're sinners who love their sin and have rebelled against an almighty, perfect, holy king. None of us deserve to hear. It is His unadulterated, pure mercy that brings the gospel to them. It is not that they deserve it because they're pretty great people or that because of their suffering and their, their poor estate, whether they're poor spiritually or physically, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so we go to people not because they deserve it, but because God has commanded us, the good God has commanded us to go, and He is growing His heart in us to be merciful and to take this beautiful message to them. He has set His affection on sinners, and so He is sending us to be that voice. Finally, what is my ultimate reason for being on mission? What is our ultimate reason for being on mission? Adam said it this morning in the welcome. The reason is God Himself. God Himself is our ultimate reason for mission. And it is His greatness and it is our love for Him. When it comes to mission, are we going for God first? Are we serving God in our churches because it's duty or because it's what everybody else is doing or because we feel obligated? Or are we doing it because we love Him? Because we're amazed by Him. I think sometimes there's both there in the lives of the believer. 
Let it be our love for Him. Stir up that love for God. Let Him be first in your life. Let Him be the primary reason why you are willing to give it all. Why you are willing to sell out. Why you are willing to take risks for His name. Why you are willing to take risks in your family and to do things that are different from all the families around you. Even if they're in your own church. Let love for Him guide you and let it transform us into something different. Is His greatness in our mind's eye and heart the driving force in our lives? It should be. Love for man should be in us. But love for man should come as a consequence of our first love. Where is your worship of God this morning? Where is your heart? I say all this this morning to drive home these truths about the Lord, these truths about your God in hopes that maybe your heart will be stirred to seek Him. Not just as a means for missions. Oh, we've really got to get in touch with God so that we can do missions right. No, my friend, you and I have got to get in touch with God because that's what our lives are about. Your deepest heart desire should be to know God. And when you and I are pursuing God and we are seeking God, we are seeking Him alone, everything else will flow out of that. Amen? Is that where we are? Is that where our church is? Let it be our prayer. Maybe this morning you need to to either come down here or maybe you need to stay in your seat and you need to repent over how unamazed with God you've been. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. Have we spent five minutes seeking His glory, seeking His face, seeking to be amazed with Him? Have we spent more time watching the Olympics, watching our TV shows, playing with our hobbies, working for money, doing things that may be good, but have we given Him any attention at all? Have we pursued Him? But at the end of the day, let me close with one last final thing that's hopeful. Your pursuit of God will never be impressive. Your pursuit of God will never be impressive. That's why this is all about grace. God's pursuit of you is impressive. He's pursuing you right now. He loves you. And you know what? Even though you haven't done everything right, I haven't done everything right, that's why I love Him so much. Is because He is still pursuing us. He is a God of grace. And we love Him because of that. And that's also why we go. Let's stand together and pray. You need to be saved this morning. You talk to God. Ask Him to forgive you. He will. Forgiveness is free, but it is hard to trust. But I've just explained to you this morning, you have every reason in the universe to trust God. He is good. He is holy. He is loving. He is sovereign. And your life will not be what it should be. If you stay apart from Him, will you come to Christ this morning? Will you accept the forgiveness of His Son, Jesus? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for this time. I pray that You would stir our hearts to see Your glory. Give us hearts of love for You that are compelled to go out and tell others. And we pray You would rescue the perishing 
for the sake of your mercy, for the sake of your glory, and for the sake of the good of those whom we love out of mercy because you put that in our hearts. We pray for our other churches, God, not just in the BMA, but in America and all over the world. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are dealing with persecution, God, some that are dealing with apathy. Would your spirit fill your houses of worship, your people of worship this morning and seek their hearts to stir you in a new and fresh and powerful way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.